And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Lisa's right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe Adil has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Karl Marx. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um... If I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, with 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? I mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group. I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Okay, welcome to the three left show. Fine? Yeah, levels are fine. Okay, we're fine. We're fine, folks. As fine as we can be. I'm your host, Dan Platt. You are listening, if you are in fact listening, to the three left show. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective, commentary, talk, show, talking, re- for the, but the show is for the curious or the committed. Uh, so if you've been listening to a lot of left-wing content and you just want something a little deeper, or uh, you just want to know, just want that different perspective, you want that balanced diet of media, the show promotes a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Uh, it's going to be a theory episode. Uh, why? Because there's a particular article that just kind of like was super fascinating to me. Why? Because it, it was kind of, kind of answering or at least uh, touching on a question that I've had at least for a better part of this year, which is, like, what is a kind of modern theory of class in America? You know, other countries, they have had theories of their version of Marxism. You know, Mao had was his version of Marx, Lenin, uh, in you know, any socialist state, left-wing government, what have you. They had a theory that led to the action, the organizing, and the taking of power slash, you know, the betterment of the general welfare. How do we do that in America? It always seems so scatterbrained, always so discombobulated, atomized, what have you, whatever kind of uh, adjective you want to go. And what is the class structure in America? It, it, it's always seemed hard to pin down or there's just a number of competing ideas that maybe make sense one day, but not another <laughs> Um, or maybe they only make sense when talking about national politics, but then when you look to the local level, they don't seem to match up. You know, you can talk about the 1%, the billionaires, and so it's like, okay, we're not going to win on the national level uh, with progressive policy. We need to build on the state or the local level. And then there's like kind of different interests at work or different kinds of opponents that you would have. 
you can kind of fit the same structure of like, well, we live in plutocracy. It is a republic, but it's a money kind of republic, a republic of the moneyed, a plutocratic republic. Money is speech. So the most kind of uh, we call intuitive way of looking at who's in charge in America is the richest. We put the most attention there. You know, they have the most money to basically buy elections since money is speech and has been such. Money has is political power, but not so much cultural or social power. And so if you kind of have a, and it's called idealistic to focus on the culture and the social classes of who has cultural power, they also must have political power or that they, you, you mix them up and you, you confuse one for the other. You know, Hollywood, they entertain us. They have cultural power. And that in culture, it's, it's the idea that culture is downstream from politics, that, you know, what entertains you influences what you believe and how you act and how you vote. But this is backwards. It's backwards, folks. At least from my mm, leftist point of view, you always kind of start with a, it's the economic power first or what creates economic power, like where the wealth is. That's why it's like, oh, it's the workers who are the most powerful because workers, it's labor that makes the wealth. While a liberal mindset is it's no, it's who's managing the wealth or who, who is managing the workers. You know, it, it, look, without management telling people what to make or where to send it, there wouldn't be any value. People would be aimless or something, or their labor would be inefficient. And this can be partly true, and thus why you have merit to various ideas that I'm going to cover today. The article starts with a reaction to a particular article by a Patrick Wyman, which is kind of getting the rounds and getting some attention, because the historian kind of talking about anything that kind of looks at the American political landscape from a historical point of view is is usually going to be interesting because you're not stuck in the muddle of social media, uh, what do you want to call it, the morass, the swamp, the the celebrity competition, the how you put it, the uh, the professional wrestling version of, of politics. Um, kind of concept I'm going to be using more often or, or thinking about is, is kayfabe, which I don't know what it actually stands for, but it's basically when you enjoy something more or you get more out of something when you, even if it's something you know isn't true or relevant, uh, you pretend it is. You know, it's how you quote-unquote quote, professional wrestling people enjoy it. they know it's fake or choreographed it they enjoy it the same way and you enjoy any kind of show of course you know when you watch romeo and juliet that they're not actually drinking real poison and they're not actually dying together or they're not really in love that goes for any kind of acting and performance but you pretend you can get involved by suspending suspending disbelief you know it's, it's watching any kind of media really but then when it's something that, like, let's assume that you drop this attitude, this this uh, this self-performance, when it's things like political figures or something like that. This came to mind when I was I watched uh, The Interview, a movie from a few years ago. Basically, the satire is the North Korean 
People's Republic's regime, the Kims in particular. And like many kind of from a liberal perspective, it's kind of assumed that like, no, actually people really are brainwashed in these socialist regimes, that they have absolutely no autonomy whatsoever. They live in such a state of, of fear and, and whatnot. And that's kind of it. But the government is also extremely weak and ineffectual and inefficient, but everyone's afraid of it and so on. It's, you know, mutually exclusive things. But it, it makes more sense if it's like, no, 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 it's like kayfabe. Like, people know that the Kims aren't gods or whatever, or the great leaders. They just pretend they are. It's it's more more enjoyable to live in a nation state when you have leaders that, you know, are important. And if you don't think Americans don't do that, I'm sure you can think of examples where Americans do that. Perhaps all celebrity culture is a version of this. So let's just start with the text here. I'm going to start with the kind of insinuating, it's an adaptation of, the, of an essay the, um, produced by The Atlantic, but it's called uh, The American Gentry. And so this is by Patrick Wyman, and all the other articles I have is basically related or flowing from this. So it's like a, there's a path of ideas that I'm going to follow here. Give you all the, give you all the juicy background, because basically it's what I did. And I'd like just to share that with you. <laughs> so, okay, subheading uh, is, The jet-setting cosmopolitans of popular imagination exist, but they are far outnumbered by a less exalted and less discussed elite group one that sits at the pinnacle of America's local hierarchies. Okay, so there's different types of hierarchies. There's like the national, the international hierarchy. You know, there's a different kind of one percent, one percent of the one percent, what have you. So this was published last week. Wyman is a host of a podcast called The Tides of History. You could check that out on your own, I suppose. Let's skin to the text here. So the insinuating essay. American wealth and power usually have a certain look. Glass-walled penthouse apartments and glittering urban skyscrapers, sprawling country mansions, ivy-covered prep schools, vacation homes in the Hamptons. These are the outward symbols of an entrenched oligarchy. The political economic ruling class portrayed by the media that entertains us and the conspiracy theories that animate the darker corners of the American imagination, also called like the subconscious. And if you don't have a theory of class, conspiracy theory is kind of what your God is. <laughs> you know, the, the God is dead. Uh, there's no singular, you know, person in the sky. But there is this ruling class that does, in fact, control what we do. Or we fear them, but we can powerless against them. We struggle in vain or what have you. We, we make, a, what do you call it, you make sacrifice, you know, to the altar, whatever you know. The reality of American wealth and power is more banal. The conspicuously consuming celebrities and jet-setting cosmopolitans of popular imagination exist. Okay, so this is a kind of yes, but and. But they are far outnumbered by a less exalted and less discussed elite group. One that sits... Okay, I just read that. Okay, so anyway. They sit at the pinnacle of local hierarchies that govern daily life for tens of millions of people. Donald Trump grasped this group's existence and its importance, acting, as he often does, on unthinking but effective instinct. When he crowed about his beautiful boaters, lauding the flotillas of supporters trailing manga flags from their watercraft in his honor, or addressed his devoted followers among a rioting January 6th crowd that included people who had flown to the event on private jets, he knew what he was doing. 
Trump was courting the support of the American gentry, that's the way he calls them, the salt-of-the-earth millionaires who see themselves as local leaders in business and politics, the unappreciated backbone of a once great nation. You know, the true builders of the country. Especially if they were currently retired, you know, their heyday and their, their growing up was during America's golden age, our height. So, of course, they're going to feel really good about what America is. Because they are at the top. But not the very top. Okay? Because, so, in the back of my mind, there's always, like, the Marxist concepts of means of production and so on. And I'll address that through the lens of a guy who kind of runs parallel to Weidman here. So this class of people exists all over the U.S., usually in mid-sized metropolitan areas like Yakima, Washington, the agricultural city where I grew up, 140 miles southeast of Seattle, the Pacific Northwest's largest metro. According to the prominent sign on the freeway outside town, Yakima is the Palm Springs of Washington. The sign is one of the few things outsiders tend to remember about it, along with the excellent cheeseburgers from miners and one of the nation's worst COVID-19 outbreaks. Now, I love Parks and Recreation, the ABC show, I think, or CBS. No, it's ABC. Uh, because it accurately portrayed life in a place like Yakima, a city that isn't small and serves as the hub for a dispersed chunk of rural territory, but it isn't tightly connected to a major metro area. But Parks and Rec is an exception. Places like Yakima and Parks and Rec's fictional Pawnee don't figure prominently in the country's popular imagination or its political narratives. So he names a few of them. San Luis in California, Odessa in Texas, Bloomington, Illinois, Medford, Oregon, Hilo, Hawaii, Donthan, Alabama, Green Bay, Wisconsin. These aren't the places movies take place. Yakima isn't a tiny, tiny hamlet either, though. It has a population of about 90,000, similar to Albany. So basically, he's kind of describing a lot of mid-sized cities like Albany, my home, as well as how its politics work. And it's kind of needed to have an understanding of how any local politics work as opposed to the national politics. Because so much, especially online, it's so much geared towards the online, I'm sorry, not the online, the, the national conversation, if it's Americans having it. And even bigger, you know, since being online means it could be from anywhere. It, it, it's a global conversation. So you think you're talking about the global political situation. So then when you actually have to act local, you have no understanding or basis for action except whatever culture war you might be engaging in online or the political discourse slash analysis that you're getting from from national outlets. Because it's not like there's some deeper multi-analogy ideology discussion happening in your local paper if it still exists. So Seattle is only a two-hour drive away from the towering Cascade Mountains, but it's an entirely different world culturally, politically, and economically. Yakima is a place I love dearly and have returned to often since I left, but I've never lived there again on a permanent basis. The same is true for many of my close high school classmates. If they left for college, most have never returned for longer than a few months at a time. Practically all of them now live in major metro areas scattered across the country, not our hometown. The kinds of jobs they are now qualified for in corporate or management, consulting, nonprofits, media, and finance, they don't exist in Yakima. Or they did at one time, but they've all moved to the metro areas. A kind of regional outsourcing. Yakima's economy revolved 
then and revolves to an even greater extent now around commercial agriculture. As a result, the whole region is dominated by its wealthy, largely agricultural, property-owning class. Ah, not information economy. They mostly owned and still own fruit companies, because it's a fruit-growing place, and other large-scale industries in the region, particularly commercial construction, which are essentially economically downstream from the agriculture. These companies pave the roads on which fruits and veggies are transported to the transshipment points. They build the warehouses where the produce is stored and so on. Commercial agriculture is a lucrative industry. Well, we all eat, don't we? At least for those who own the orchards, the cold storage units, the processing facilities, and the large businesses that cater to them. The owners have a trusted and reasonably well-paid cadre of managers and specialists in law and finance and the like. Members of an, keep, keep this uh, phrase in mind, educated professional managerial class that my close classmates and I have joined. But the large majority of their employees are lower-wage laborers. So you can see there's a class dynamic there. So you have owners, you have managers, and then you have laborers. That's the usual triad that goes back even to Marx, where you have, um, well, actually, it was always a duality, wasn't it? It was you have bourgeoisie, owners, and you have working class. And since the you know modern era, 20th century, we have this kind of class of managers and educated because in Marx's day, barely only, well, the owners were the educated and there was no kind of separation between being an educated person but not owning anything besides maybe your house. And even then, maybe the bank owns it because you have a mortgage. The owners are mostly white, the laborers, mostly Latino. A significant portion of them undocumented immigrants who often work under brutally difficult circumstances. Ownership of the real core assets is where the region's wealth comes from, a.k.a. means of production. And it doesn't extend down the social hierarchy. Yet this bounty is enough to produce hilltop mansions, a few high-end restaurants, and a staggering array of expensive vacation homes in Hawaii, Palm Springs, and San Juan Islands. These elites' wealth derives not from their salary. This is what separates them from even extremely prosperous members of the PMC, professional managerial class. I'll be abbreviating it as I go through the hours here. These include doctors and lawyers, but from their ownership of assets. Those assets vary depending on where in the country we're talking about. They could be a bunch of McDonald's franchises in Jackson, Mississippi, a beef processing plant in Lubbock, a construction company in Billings, Montana, commercial properties in Portland, Maine, or a car dealership in western North Carolina. Even the less prosperous parts of the U.S. generate enough surplus to produce a class of wealthy people. Depending on the political culture and institutions of the locality, this elite class might wield more or less political power. In some places, it has an effective strangle over what gets done. In others, it's important, but maybe not all-powerful. Maybe there is a, a decrepit but still existing political machine. That's kind of what Albany feels like. Wherever these elites live, their wealth and connections make them influential forces within local society. In the aggregate, though, their political donations and positions within their locality and region, they wield a great deal of influence. They are the local gentry of the U.S. These folks' wealth extends into the millions and tens of millions rather than the billions we typically typically associate with the world-shaping clout 
of the international oligarchs. There are, however, a lot more of them than the global elites who get all the attention. They're not the faces of instantly recognizable brands or the subjects of award-winning New York Times profiles. They own warehouses and Applebee's franchises, concrete companies and movie theater chains, hop fields and apartment complexes. So you can see, like, they are culturally ignored and they have zero cultural power, but from the standpoint of the means of production and the wealth generation, they are pretty much they're the ones kind of sitting there. I'm not going to say they're going to do the work because a lot of them are just passively raking in the money. They're rent, they're rentiers. They are my enemy. <laughs> but they're also the people that, as far as local charities go, they're the ones with like their own foundations and any kind of grant that doesn't come from the federal government or the Rockefellers uh, or the Gates Foundation. <laughs> you put, oh, never mind them. It's coming from them as well. You know, they give back a little bit. <laughs> and in the in the case of um, in the Albany region, we have the Golubs. Uh, the Golub Corporation is the price chopper chain where I buy my groceries <laughs> most of the time. The other a third of the time, the co-op. Because their wealth is rooted in the ownership of physical assets, they tend to be more rooted in the places of origin than the cosmopolitan professionals and entrepreneurs of the major metro areas. Mobility among major metros, the characteristic jumping from Seattle to L.A. to New York to Austin that's possible for the younger lawyers, creatives, and tech folks is foreign to them. They might really like heading to a vacation home in Bermuda or Maui, they might plan a relatively early retirement to a wealthy enclave in Scottsdale, Arizona, or Central Florida. Ultimately, however, their money and importance comes from the businesses they own, and those belong to a local area. Gentry classes, so here's where we get into the wider historical context here. Because he calls them the gentry, you know, it's a standard name, standard term. Gentry classes have been a common feature of a great many social, economic, political regimes but what, throughout history. Pretty much anywhere you have a hierarchical form of social organization and property ownership, an entrenched gentry class emerges. In the course of history, over the course of working on my doctorate and his own research for his podcast, I've come across many different gentries, each with its own ideas about how it's legitimate its role in society, and its relationship to those above and below on the social ladder. The local civic elites of the Roman Empire, the landlords of the late Han China, and numerous lower nobility in late medieval France, the Thanes of Anglo-Saxon England, the Prussian Junkers, and the planter class of the antebellum South. Although they didn't, weren't doing the planting, they had slaves for that. Anyway, the gentry are distinct from the higher levels of a regime's political and economic elite. They're usually not resident in the political center. They don't hold major positions in central administrations, the federal government I'm referring to, or what that, whatever that consists of. And they aren't counted among the wealthiest people in their polity. Polity being, you know, right now we have a global polity. New national imperial elites might develop over time from a gentry class, even rulers. The boundaries between these groups can be more or less porous, but that's not typically the case. Gentry are, by definition, local elites. The extent to which they will power in their locality and how they do so is dependent on the structure of their regime. So, for example, in the early Roman Empire, so I guess that means after the Republic, but before 
before Christ, I guess. There was like 50 years. So, so, for example, local civic elites were essential to the functioning of the states. They collected the taxes in their home city. They administered justice and competed with one another for uh, local uh, city uh, political offices and seats. Their competition was a driving force between the provision of benefits to the common folk in the form of festivals, games, public spending of any kind, and the more basic support, a practice called civic uh, eugenitism. I'll have to look up that word so I know how to say it properly. But it's probably what I just described, where local elites give out money, charity, but they don't want to pay any taxes. So these local elites of the Roman world served as a linkage between the emperors, such as Augustus or Hadrian, and the archipelago of cities that made up the empire. The central state essentially outsourced the day-to-day running of the empire to the city councilors of Marseille, or Athens, or Carthage, and the dozens of other cities scattered uh, from Britain to Arabia. Roman elites were fundamentally urban. They owned rural estates and spent a great deal of time there, but cities were the venues for their competition with one another. Contrast those Roman elites with the planter class of the slavery era of the South, American South. I'm not going to use antebellum. I'm going to say slavery era. It's once, uh, it, it's, it's cla- like it should be classified by the fact that it was a slave economy. I'm going to call it that. So superficially, they share a great deal in common. And not just because the planter class loved to read the classics and explicitly modeled itself after the aristocracies of Greco-Roman antiquity. You know, thus they loved uh, Greek revival-style houses. Both were slave-owning elites. Both valued a specific kind of elite education as a marker of social status. Ah, social status, uh, you know, determined by education level. Both owned extensive rural estates, and both exerted strong, effectively unchecked control over their local locality. But the planner class was fundamentally rural. Its members went to a few cities to show off their wealth and sophistication, but by and large they spent their time and energy at the plantation. There were the places they effectively ruled, politicking with the, their fellow aristocrats. They were incredibly wealthy planters with huge estates, owning hundreds of enslaved people. But plenty of planters operated on a more modest scale. But even the more modest planters, those owning more than 10 enslaved people, more than 20 in other parts, were still an elite group by any reasonable standard. The medieval European gentry was likewise a fundamentally rural group. So it kind of goes on with that uh, situation. And then um, uses the example of uh, the Delhi Sultanate of India, which was also a rural um, lord, uh, landlord class. So it's not just pure nostalgia uh, why he started, why I, the, re- the writer, have started in Yakami. Uh, because it's easy to see the structured parallels with the past when we look at a heavily rural and agricultural region, even one that's not exactly prominent in the American imagination. The gentry residing in my hometown largely own land, the products of which form their primary source of wealth. Of course, again, the wealth doesn't exist without the labor, you know but they organize the labor. They sit atop the local hierarchy. But much of the U.S. isn't as rural or as obviously hierarchical in either social or racial terms as Yakima. It's not hard to spot sprawling apple orchards or vineyards and figure out that the person who owns them is probably wealthy. It's harder to intuitively grasp that a single family might own 17 McDonald's franchises in East Tennessee or understand just how much money that the ownership of the third biggest construction company in Bakersfield, California, could also generate. When we talk about inequality, 
So this is a general point for the left here, or anybody. We skew our perspective by looking at the most visible manifestations of the it. The penthouses of New York, the mansions of Beverly Hills, the lavish wastefulness of hedge fund billionaires, or a misbehaving celebrity. But that's not who most of United Snake's wealthy elites really are. They own $2 million houses on golf courses outside Orlando and a condo in the Bahamas, not an architecturally designed open, uh, oceanfront villa in Miami. Those billionaires and their excesses exist, but they're not nearly as common as a less exalted category of the rich that's no less structurally formative to our economy and society. So an enormous number of organizations and institutions advance the interests of this gentry class. Chambers of commerce, exclusive country clubs, housing developments, the American Society of Concrete Contractors, the Fruit Growers Associations, just to name a small cross-section. Though these organizations and their intimate ties to local and state politics, the gentry class can and usually does waste significant power to shape society to its liking. They don't really have uh, the social power, you know, they're not making the culture, but they still make all the decisions in the zoning. And that zoning, that built environment of the city, you know, affects how much uh, cycling can happen. You know, it, it affects how the culture war actually plays out. You know, who's printing the textbooks? Sure, there's a, the culture war over the school board um, that technically has a stamp of approval on what the textbook is in it, what's in it. But then there's also the printers that are also kind of influencing why that is important in the first place, that there is this centralized with this big company that prints the textbooks. McGill. So it's easy to focus on the massive political spending of uh, Sheldon Anderson or Mike Bloomberg. It's harder, but no less important, to imagine what kind of deals about water rights or local zoning ordinances are being struck across America on the eighth green of the local country club. Some people work their way into this property-holding gentry class by virtue of their blood, sweat, and sheer gumption. That's one variant of the American dream, the belief that hard work and talent, and maybe a little luck, can take a person into the ranks of the elite. You know, because that's, that's what it really means to be to make it. Because, hell, you can be a professional, but under the right conditions, you could lose everything. Or a lot of it. But far more members of the gentry class are born into it. They inherit these assets, whether they are car dealerships, apple orchards, or construction companies, and manage to avoid screwing things up. Managers run, and so I guess that's a talent in itself, right? You have to do that, the minimum effort of not screwing up. Magnets, uh, no, sorry, managers run their companies. Lawyers look over their contracts. Accountants oversee their finances, but they're the owners. Whether or not they've done a single thing of their own volition to accumulate those assets. This is broadly true of gentry classes. They're hereditary. Large amounts of property of any kind form a durable base for generational wealth, whatever specific type shape it might take. So the American gentry class isn't entirely closed to new blood, but it is typically hereditary. Equating wealth generally, especially generational wealth with virtue and ability is a deeply American pathology. Mindset. This country loves to believe that people get what they deserve. Sounds like Christian ideology first, but mm, we'll see. That's just part of it. Despite the abundant evidence to the contrary, Nowhere is this more obviously untrue than with our gentry class. The American gentry stands at the apex of the social order throughout huge swaths of the country. It shapes our economic and political world thanks to its resources and comparatively large numbers. 
yet it's practically invisible to the popular eye. Forget the skyscrapers and opulent country mansions, the elite family dynamics of succession, and the antics of the Kardashians. Look instead to the far more numerous multi-million dollar planned golf course communities and their controlling homeowners associations. Think about the informal property development deals struck between sweating local grandes at the country club bar in Odessa, Texas, or Knoxville, Tennessee. Power resides in gated communities and local philanthropic boards, and the ownership of staggering numbers of fast food franchises, and the smooth transmission of a large construction company's assets to a new generation of small yacht owners. Power can be found in group photos of half-soused, overweight men in ill-fitting polo shirts, and the millionaire is ready and willing to fly their private jets to Washington, D.C. in support of a certain would-be authoritarian. The yeoman developer of luxury condominiums, the single-digit millionaire meatpacking plant owner, the property management entrepreneur. These were the people who, remembering or inventing their tradition of dominance over towns and cities, flocked to make America great again. As much of the U.S. loves to think of itself as an egalitarian paradise, open to talent of any stripe, hierarchy and local power are, no less, the American way. So there is like the global billionaire class 1%. And I think that is probably like a way of understanding the world and, and class warfare that way. But if we're going to, if we're discussing national politics and especially state and local politics, there's kind of a different class war happening. Because there's different types or kinds of like ruling classes or a class of people that are in charge you know, of the economy because there's the local economy or the regional economy, which makes, which is more existing, the regional economy. And then there's the national economy, which is defined by our borders and the tariffs and the trade deals. And then there's a global economy, which is ever more integrated because of the dropping of borders and, uh, and tariffs and so on. So there's, as he says, there's a lot of attention put on the big issues, the, the, the international and the class structure that way. But it isn't that helpful when running a local campaign when you don't have billionaire money flooding in, but you still have this total imbalance of power between those who own the grocery stores and those who work at the grocery stores. So let's explore this further with Jacobin's interview of Patrick Wyman, the writer I just read. So a little more from him where he can expand on some of the points he's making. Okay, yeah. So there's something you so this is um a Lukey Luke Savage is the interviewer. So there's something you observe about this group's class identity that seems really important, talking about the gentry class. Their wealth is most likely to be rooted in ownership of physical assets, and you argue that this is formative to their identity, because they have their own identity politics, don't they? And also a significant point of distinction from the visible kind of American gentry. Can you expand on that? So he answers. I think that is absolutely foundational to what this class is in terms of how it plays and power structures, and also in terms of how it sees and how it understands itself. This didn't occur to me as I was writing the piece, and I wish I'd put it in there, but I think back to the 2012 presidential election, I know this is a long way back now, when Barack Obama was castrated by Republicans for saying that you didn't build that, 
talking about the role of government in creating economic prosperity. And the refrain at the Republican National Convention that year, led in chance, was, we built it, we built it. That's this group of people, because they see their physical output of their ownership constantly. If you own a construction company, you see the buildings you, you, quote-unquote, you build. Never mind all the workers, right? If you own an orchard, you see the containers of fruit getting shipped off. There's a straightforward physical and material world that they live in, as well as all the workers, by the way. Class consciousness, ding, ding, ding. They make things, and they own the means of making things. But here, here's, where, here's where we take that away from them, though. They don't make it. They own the means of making it, but workers they hire make it. For them, that is a very distinct difference between the way that they define themselves and their understanding of the intellectual, paper-pushing work of the lawyer, or even the doctor, or God forbid, the college professor or financier. And it's not that they have no relationship to these things. They probably have a kid who may be one, and maybe they've got a cousin who works in finance in New York. It's not like they're not exposed to these things, but I think there is a fun, fundamental difference of a self-definition that comes from the role being the owner of things that is present in people's lives. Okay, I'll keep reading. So we've sort of touched on this already, but how would you say this group relates to its own class position specifically? They're a highly influential stratum of American society. They possess of a huge amount of intergenerational wealth, but your rendering of it strongly suggests that members of the stratum don't think of themselves that way. You know, they're, they're plucky underdogs. Because, like, compared to the state. And that's kind of the shift that isn't mentioned in any of the articles I have here is that shift in the mid-20th century where, for most of history, you had this landed gentry that was in control of the local economy and politics. But in the 30s and 40s and the interwar period and beyond, there was a shift of big government, right? It was the feder federal government, at least in America, but also elsewhere in the world. Soviet Union is also a form of this. It's parallel, okay, it's not opposing completely. Opposing ideologies, but not in its how how it is. But you had the centralization. You had the God. It, it was a video about architecture. Okay, I covered it Sunday with uh, my uh, partner in crime, or, or at least friend uh, Zach of uh, BreadTube Bread Theory. Um, it was a video about brutalism and uh, in architecture, and how you know public buildings. Right, whether it's in ancient Rome or in America pre-1940, public buildings were always built with private money. Right, local budgets did not actually pay for local buildings unless it was like I don't know water infrastructure, a dam, but never the public building, the libraries, always a charity, always private money. And suddenly, with the New Deal era. You had all this construction of libraries and institutions and national parks, and it was with public money, with publicly paid workers. Suddenly, this local, the local gentry being talked about here had a lot of its power, its, its cultural impact, its, its ability to make the choices of what, what things look like. It was taken away from them by the evil federal government, social democrats. So that's something to keep in mind there. And so since the New Deal era, the mid-century, we've kind of been going, we've had a fusion of the two. 
where um, you know the postmodern economy is both the financialization, abstracting, and the globalizing of the economy. But thanks to Reaganite policies, Reagan, Thatcher, whatever, postmodern economics, it got a lot of their power back. They've been they've been fighting against this trend ever since, and Trump is the latest manifestation of them kind of showing that they still matter, that they there it's it's part it's their struggle. Like the class struggle is not between the working class and the ruling some ruling class. No. That's not how it's been in America. It's been a, you know, federalizing class of professionals and social democrats and these conservative minded nationalistic local gentry. We'll go into that further. So the really interesting thing about this group of people is that they do not want to think of themselves as a group at all. They are so strongly defined by their individual sense of themselves as owners and as people who own property, who own businesses, who are employers, who employ people. And so on one hand, there's this resistance to seeing themselves as a member of a group, because you know, individualism is so prevalent. But at the same time, there's always they're always competing with other people who belong in that same category. And I think you see this really clearly in relation to local philanthropic organizations, where there's intense competition around who can throw the nicest fundraiser, who can get this or that local prize named after them, who's going to get their name on the building. You know, that kind of stuff matters in these contexts. They're competing with what is obviously their peer group. But they don't want to think of themselves in those terms. And if they do think of themselves, I mean, so they're competing, but they're in a peer group, you know? They're all friends at the end of the day. Or they hate each other, but they all still have the same class interest. So if you have some union drive, they're all going to, like, chip in, right? <laughs> in their own way. So it's as benefactors of their local communities, you know, community people. Like, uh, if not for us, then who would be creating jobs? If not for us, who's going to give a 16-year-old his first job? I'm going to give a 16-year-old his first job. Or who's going to be sure that there's some slop at the soup kitchen? Well, I make sure there's slop at the soup kitchen. You know, that kind of thing. Where they want it to be understood that they're at the top of the local hierarchy and that they want a cookie for it, you know, if that makes sense. You know, they want a treat. <laughs> so to what extent, this is the interviewer, to what extent would it be fair to say that these categories map neatly onto liberal conservative or Democrat Republican binary? I think it's pretty safe to say that this group leans very heavily, though not exclusively Republican. There are probably, in the aggregate, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people within this group who vote for Democrats, either because they live in a heavily Democratic area and want to have some say in local politics and support their particular brand of Democratic polit politician, or because they strongly believe in progressive principles. You know, So maybe they don't control what party is in charge, but they can be damn sure they control who is winning the primary. That's what I see locally. I think there are absolute people who fit that description within this group, but I think the material interests mitigate very hard against any sort of identification, which is odd because this goes against like his last paragraphs about painting the land of gentry as being the ones who went to Washington to riot at the Capitol. So in reality, of course, they're always happy to get federal government contracts. The concrete company I once worked for absolutely loved getting federal contracts. And if we loved doing those jobs because we got a prevailing wage, we got paid double what we normally got paid on an hourly rate. It's not that they're going to turn down a federal fire hose of money or anything like that. It's that they want to think of themselves as standing on their own. 
We don't need that kind of interference here. We run things. So I think that they are kind of naturally opposed to the idea of centralized power, even within a state. Sentiments like, we don't like those bureaucrats in Sacramento telling us what to do, are a very strong current that runs throughout this class. Really, they just want to maintain their own power. And it's not really an ideology thing. The ideology is more about convincing others and themselves about why they want to preserve their own hierarchy. When, if you think about it, you strip away all the ideology, you're just left with, I want to be in charge. So you argue that this group is less visible and less prominent in the metropolitan bourgeois, but no less important to understanding who wields and exercises power in American society. So who does wield real power in the United States? Is their world more succession or Tiger King? So that's a really fantastic way of framing it and understanding it, he responds. One of the really common responses I got to this uh, was that by focusing my ire on this particular gentry class, I was somehow giving a free pass to the billionaires. And of course, they're not good either. And you don't have to like the billionaire metropolitan oligarchs to say that there is also a local gentry who wield power. The two can both be bad. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. And they're bad in different ways. Each of them exercises influence in baneful ways on American politics, but do so differently. Local gentry, by virtue of the fact that they are rooted in the localities, do their damage there. They do their damage by making sweetheart deals with local government to favor their businesses over others, to snuff out competition, to ensure that their fail son, it's funny he uses that term, is going to get out of jail after driving uh, drunk or hitting somebody. That's the kind of power that local gentry wield. And the fact that they do so in the aggregate, that there are a lot of these people in a lot of different places, it has a profound effect. Now, it's not that the Koch network is not important. It's important understanding the way that some legislation gets written. But the people who are populating the Republican state's legislators who are passing those bills at the state level, they're drawn from this class. They're drawn from this other class, yeah. Now, in some sense, the two groups can find ways of allying themselves when it comes to both national and regional or local politics. They're not separate groups when it comes to that. They can find their interests in perfect alignment from time to time. Sociologically, if you want to understand the Republican political class in the U.S., you need to understand this group because this is where it's drawn from. Sunburn Country Club guys. That's who we're talking about here. And I mean, I would call them capital T, capital G type of guy. Analysis can help you understand the political economy at play here. You see a sunburned dude with a flat-brimmed hat who's in his 30s and has got stubble and is wearing a polo shirt purple, well, a purple one, while hanging off the back of his $80,000 truck. You instantly think, this is a burgeoning member of the gentry and likely a future state legislator right here. And I like to find the humor of these in these things. But I think that guy, even if he never runs for Congress, even if nobody outside a pocket of a thousand people ever learns who he is, that guy has a lot of employees and people who are forced to work with him. So he is structuring, sometimes in a profound way, our material life of the people who are working for him and in those who, who are customers, maybe. He's influencing the local environment in which people are living, even if they don't work for him. So the influence of this group in the aggregate is profound because there's just a ton, ton of them. This guy is everywhere. 
Whew. So that was just like the introductory um, paragraphs, but um, I'll be more summarizing with the last four that I have because uh, they're basically reactions to this. So I, I was reading them in full for that reason. So that, that, that works out pretty well. Do the housekeeping of sorts. Reminders that I'm on all social media, most social media, not Instagram, actually. So maybe I should be adding that to my repertoire. But uh, Twitter, Facebook, I mostly share the show, but on Facebook I'm a little more active. I do post a bit more. So check that out, please. Um, follow the page, please. Amanda, Amanda, www.amandaplease.com. So this episode uh, is a podcast, and the last ten are broadcast on all the podcasting apps you can think of. That's iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, uh, Google Play, and so on. Um, but you can find the full archive of the show at um, HTTMS. Uh, colons, backslash, backslash, but um, basically without the www, don't use that, uh, three lefts dot news. Of course, oh yeah, that's the ending, don't need that. Um, but anyway, uh, donations go to grandarts.org, and uh, I think that's that's all the housekeeping I need to share. So, give my voice a rest and play you a little bit of music.
Welcome back to the Three Left Show. Left wing commentary analysis and general like things to think about. Puzzle over. Go. Whoa. I never thought of it that way. Hmm. Hmm. If you're uh, curious, open to it. Here's someone who isn't really curious or open to it. Uh, one uh, in a reaction to basically, I spent the last hour reading by uh, Wyman, historian Patrick Wyman. And he seemed to have, at the very least, a left-leaning politics, uh, not a fan of inequality, power imbalance, and the kind of dynamics that exist. Uh, He fled his uh, small city about the size of Albany because of that dynamic. And and it's really why a lot of people leave cities like my hometown of Albany. You don't live here unless you maybe kind of have to live here. Though many have moved here because the metro areas are just too expensive and they just do not have the kind of job or income to continue living there. I figure, like, you know, if you're well-off in Manhattan, you retire to Florida. If you're not well-off, like you live in Bronx, uh, you move to, you move upstate. Sort of joke, because I've just met enough people, a few people who basically retirement age, and they're retiring from, uh, they lived in the Bronx or, or Queens. So this is from the American Conservative don't read a lot from there. Um, that's okay. It's short. It's always very short. Not much to say from the conservatives. But anyway, it's a, it's a reaction, and it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if it's funny, but it's, uh, it's, uh, I'll have fun reading it. And I'm kind of... I forget why I clicked on this, actually. I think it was... I guess I was just curious to see, like, okay, you have this thorough explanation with historical precedents putting it in a wider context beyond just America about local power. And uh, how, how does a right-winger respond to this? You know, what, what kind of, either do they justify that this is the way things are and so on? Or, or ah, but there's the other way where, let's say you're a Trump person and you believe that the deep state and the liberal elites that have all the cultural power um, are in fact running everything, and they've cheated Trump out of the election. And these local elites, the beautiful voters, you know, they built this country. They own. They they make the things. They manage the the unruly labor. You know, people would have nothing to do if uh, if they didn't actually if they didn't have all this property, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the paradox, right? If they didn't own it, quote unquote, someone else would. But this someone else could be, in fact, a lot of people. It could be everyone, in fact. It could be communally owned. Or, even if you're thinking individually speaking, it could be split up a thousand ways. Now, that's really inefficient, right, to have a thousand smaller apple orchards instead of one large one. But that's what community ownership's all about. You can have one big thing that's efficient, and everyone has a stake in it. Co-ops, unions, blah, 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 you know the drill. If you listen to me enough, but if if you have any kind of left wing thought in your head, you know what I'm you know. You know what the alternative could be. It doesn't have to be this centrally owned, even locally speaking, centrally owned or centrally owned stuff. You know, they hate central government, they hate big big government and, and people tell them what to do. What do they think they do to everybody? They tell everyone what to do. They have central control in their locality. They're petty tyrants. So here's the headline. God bless an American gentry. Subtitle. Local elites do not actually run this country. 
but I wouldn't be complaining if they did. <laughs> so this is written by a Declan Leary, also last week. I wish I lived in Patrick Wayman's head, the full-time podcaster who holds a PhD in history from the University of South Cal, explains his understanding of American class structure in an essay published Thursday in The Atlantic. So I guess they were the original publisher. So as Wyman sees it, the real power in this country is held. Uh, but so okay, so I'm I'm reading this in the fun way. I'm not going to debunk every line, but if you're paying if you're paying sort of attention to what I was reading in the last hour, you should be able to pick out. I I trust your intelligence to pick out where he's misrepresenting, where he's outright lying, um, saying things that were not said by Wyman, for example. He doesn't say, like, the real power. He just says that there is power being held by them. So we'll, I'll just give you that example, and I'll move on from there. The, so I'm going to read this in more, you know, funny voice, I guess, unless he's quoting Wyman. But I already read that today, so I'll skip it. But anyway. The real power in this country is held by the American gentry, the salt-of-the-earth millionaires, and he quotes him, because these local leaders are, according to Wyman, actually more powerful than the more visible national and global elites. We can forget the skyscrapers and da-da-da-da. So let's set aside, for the time being, any potential... I have no idea what this guy actually sounds like. Uh, any potential ulterior motives for this line coming from a magazine owned by Steve Jobs' billionaire activist widow and try to focus on the merits of the argument. Ah, uh, nice. That's difficult to do, as no argument is actually made. Wyman asserts that these local gentry hold the real power in America, and then at least strongly implies that this is a bad thing, but makes no effort to convince his reader that either of these is true. Well, that's because... It's an essay trying to make a structural argument, not a moral one. He's not, he didn't make, yeah, he did, true, he didn't make any effort to say that this was bad, only that it was inaccurate just to say that there's this kind of elite and that there isn't this other type of elite. You know, it's obfuscation, which is what makes the essay useful. A good thing. Uh, that it's not trying to make moral argument. Because, hey, if there's anything leveled against the left, it's that we're always moralizing everything and not just talking about the facts, right? He just talked about the facts. And now this guy's saying he should have made a moral argument. Make up your mind. Civic and business leaders with deep personal ties to a particular place and community have not been the dominant political power here for quite some time, but would so almost certainly be better if they were. Politically, it is virtually indisputable that the vast majority of power is currently vested in the federal government. Big government, big government. Even after all the Reaganite policy, even after all the tax cuts and all of the frickin' deregulation and whatever. No, no, big government, federal government still has all power. It's amazing. It's quite amazing how, how endless the supply of power that the federal government has. Far removed, not just from Americans' concerns, but their influence as well, including even the, the gentry outside Washington. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the Beltway class is a uh, Beltway uh, consultants are the gentry inside of Washington. Economically, power is dis disproportionately held by multinational organizations. Ah, well, globally speaking, that is true, including both highly visible public-facing ones like Amazon, Walmart, and Apple as well as less headline-friendly institutions like big banks and holding companies. Culturally, 
Everything lies in the hands of a few Hollywood giants, the big five book publishers, and the handful of tech companies that dominate the digital space. These top-level powers effectively create the world in which the rest of us operate. So actually, I'm going to stop myself here. I'm not just reading this to make fun of this guy. He is observing something. He's basically giving what I prefaced the other thing, that, yeah, there is a global elite. There is a global economy. How do we synthesize that these are these things are both true so even the gentry are subject to their impositions unlike but but that's his case was that they're locally and regionally or state even states powerful not that they have no power or that they're all powerful so that's where this guy is you know making stuff up like many on the right do Unlike true economic giants, the legal and regulatory environment in which they do business is almost entirely determined by bureaucratic power as far removed from them as the rest of us. As they pretend, as I would see it. Their area of economic influence is even further circumscribed by the aforementioned giants, as, for instance, the mid-sized general retailer must both compete with the power of Amazon and operate within a market whose conditions are largely determined by it. Like the rest of us, the vast majority of the cultural products they consume, save for the small local operations they are the most likely to fund, come from progressive corporate hubs, hubs over which they have very little influence. To suggest that, that they are the real architects of the status quo, simply because that they are the upper echelon within the system, misses the very existence of the system and the multi-echelons above it. Okay. Hey, at least he recognizes there's a system and that they're in the upper echelon of it. <laughs> Aren't you forgetting somebody? Everyone else? More on that later. So even worse, Wyman's apparent suggestion that local leaders are more important players than the international elites above them do operate the system itself, simply because they are far more numerous is embarrassingly simplistic. Suffice to say that Jeff Bezos is more has more power than not just the guy who owns the 10 storefronts in his modest metro area, but than a thousand American gentry with 10 storefronts in a thousand little cities. Which is all to say the idea of American gentry wielding the bulk of power in 2021 doesn't hold water for a minute, but it's still worth considering who these American gentry are. These people straddle the line between the upper middle and lower upper classes, they are not lower up, up, well, I mean, lower upper class and upper middle. The, the, these, the, by the way, just, just speaking bluntly, these classifications, meaningless. What income brackets are you talking about, right? What kind of power does a lower upper class person has? That's who he's talking about. They're lower than the billionaires, but they're still upper class. That's the point. Some of them might fall within that 1%. Oh, only a few. Uh, some of them, yeah. But none crack the barrier of that 0.01% with whom populists really have a quarrel. But isn't that overly simplistic? To say that it's just the top 20 people, they're the people that we have to take down or uh, attack or regulate. Because it kind of ignores, you know, everything else that exists. I mean, Bezos is there, and he's certainly oppressive. But it's not like all these 
Just because they're lower upper class doesn't mean they're any less of a dick. Or any less of a tyrant. So they are the business proprietors, the multiple franchisees, and others whose wealth derives not from their salary. And he just quotes him again. Ah, here we go. So, So I was reading this, and then he references a different essay that I just had to read. So I'm going to jump to there halfway through this article, though it's not much longer. Let's see. Uh, let me just skip to his conclusion, though. So let's see. There will always be elites. Only kindergartners and Frenchmen sincerely believe in an egalitarian society. But there are very different kinds of elites, and they'll side every single time with the MAGA-hatted boomer with a Beamer, McMansion, and 25-footer over the owner of the Atlantic and her ilk. Because, you know, it's just, you just have to pick one or the other. Turning towards Trump at the end of his essay, Wyman implicitly acknowledges this conflict between two elites and two elite visions, and seems to slip up with a tacit admission that the gentry are at a disadvantage, but potentially on the rise. <laughs> so basically, he takes the description of the yeoman developer of luxury condominiums, and basically, this guy responds with, you know, that, that, that their way is the no less the American way. And he says, amen to that. And God bless America. <laughs> oh, man, I want to kick this butt. guy in the nad so bad. Give him a wedgie. I don't know wh- who, what this guy's like. Sounds weaselly to me. <laughs> smells fishy. But anyway, let's let's turn back um, to so okay when uh, when talking about people who who own assets and that's where they get their actual money and wealth from. So they are effectively the same people as the small business bourgeois of Michael Lynn's highly regarded double horseshoe theory of American class division, one of the two prong lower prongs of the overclass and the other being the credentialized, salaried, professional bourgeois, in which Wyman, Lind, and yours truly all belong. One cannot help but wonder how much of Wyman's essay stems from the common professional bourgeois animosity toward their small business counterparts, who are typically less aligned with the managerial elite, more con- uh, there's that phrase again, managerial elite, more conservative, and even include a few without college diplomas. Because, hey, you don't really need a college diploma to run a um, metal sheet factory or something. You know, I, I interviewed with a guy who was, uh, I don't know if he owned it. I think he did. He owned the, it was a metal duct producer. And he was a man kind of without, seemed to have any kind of passion. Maybe he was just having a bad day. But I kind of like, I gave him, you know, he interviewed me. I wasn't really interested in the job, actually, once I was there. And, um... Because I actually wasn't qualified for it. I mean, it's like, look, I I wouldn't know what I was doing if you gave me this job, um, and I wasn't gonna fake it till I make it because it's too stressful to be in a position where you fake your way in, you know, too much imposter syndrome. And uh, and I but I asked him like, hey, uh, you know, how did you get into this? And he basically said he inherited it from an uncle. So I had never heard of this double horseshoe theory. Now I have heard of David uh, Michael Lind. I, he was actually featured very briefly in a Zero Books a video I played in a previous kind of 
montage of of, vid- of YouTube videos that I put together. And it was kind of about, like, cast versus class. So that there is this, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning of the show, a confusion between economic classes and cultural classes. Or, um, yeah, oh, the social classes. That, uh, you know, you have celebrities and people of cultural power. They can be rich, but they are not wealthy. Chris Rock routine, you know, like, yeah, they're rich, but they ain't wealthy. The wealthy write the richest checks. Spinning and spinning. So so I just, like, I never heard this, and it was a class analysis of America. So I've been desperate for articles or essays about this topic, even if it's coming from a guy who the people, the thinkers I like, were like, this guy is, like, no good. He's not a Marxist. He, he talks like one because he talks of class, and that's fine. But he confuses social class with economic and so on. I was really, I just, I, you know, just rabbit hole, kept reading. You know, when you're waiting for the bus, you got a lot of time, uh, depending on the bus, <laughs> depending on the bus line. Let's just jump right over from the conservative uh, D-weed and um, move over to... Um, it's the bellows. Okay, it's a site called the bellows, uh, and they keep changing what the their subtitle is. But this time, it's inflaming the discourse. So it's an article published last summer, meaning the summer of 2020, and uh, so it's called. So Michael Lynn, to su- to summarize what he's about, he's all about putting the uh, professional managerial class that PMC mentioned before. Probably heard it, that phrase before. If you haven't, it basically refers to doctors, lawyers, and professionals, creatives, tech, entrepreneurs, whatever, and putting them at the top of society. When you're doing class politics, you kind of need to identify who's in power. There could be multiple classes in power that compete with each other, but as mentioned by Wyman uh, in the interview, at least, that they can collaborate too at the same time depends on what day it is what the issue is is it about international trade or is it about culture you know gays abortion if it's about money oh they're definitely on the same page Uh, or how you get your money whatever let's explore that further with the double horseshoe theory of class politics now usually horseshoe theory of politics is that you've got the political spectrum that is not a line it's a horseshoe that the far left and <clears throat> far left and the far right ends of the spectrum are in fact very close together as far as like what they're about and what they want and how they do things. That's the horseshoe theory. It's something that my ilk make fun of incessantly. <laughs> we really hate the horseshoe theory. Not only because it says, "Oh, you're just," it, it's the it's the logic of you anti-fascists. You're just like the fascists. It's like that. Uh, oh, these BLM activists, they're just like the racists. These indigenous people who want their land back and they, and they might actually uh, kick people off, they're just as bad as the, the white people that genocided them in the first place. It's like <laughs> decolonial theory is genocidal. <laughs> Anyway, that, that's its own conversations to explore and explain what the hell I'm talking about. But let's, let's continue here. The, the class war isn't happening where you think it is by Michael Lind. 
So according to elite neoliberalism, the U.S. and Western Europe today are in perfect meritocracies, divided chiefly by race and gender and not by class. Anyone whose career does not depend on affirming this narrative can see through it, and it is obvious that class conflicts have set the North Atlantic world ablaze. But what are the classes? By the way, calling it the North Atlantic world isn't really... I mean, I, I guess it includes more of Europe than, than saying Anglophone, but you want to include Australia and former colonies and so on. Anywhere that, well, global capitalism touches. But anyway. So this is his book um, from last year, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, which the people I admire have a problem, you know, argue against. And I think in other... Um, a different article he talks about why you know the, these left wingers they actually like hate me more than i would expect anyway so he builds on his uh, his argument here i offered an answer i propose that while the proletariat are still the proletariat working class that other thinkers were correct that by the mid 20th century power had passed from individual small business owners bourgeois business owners to a new ruling class of technocrats or bureaucrats whose income, wealth, and status is linked to their positions in large hierarchical organizations, for example, nonprofits, government agencies, or industrial and financial firms. So this is the consolidation of the mid-century, right? It's describing a real thing. But applying that to today seems a mistake, because uh, a lot's changed since then. And to say that the managerial lead of the mid-century is just as powerful and central, you know, then it, it's like the Reagan revolution, quote unquote, never happened, or, you know, and all the things and new wave, Demo uh, new Democrats and da, da, da. it's like, it's, it's like forgetting all of that happened. Anyway, I use the term overclass to describe this group. A similar, though not identical concept is what is known after Barbara Endenreich's professional managerial class. Whatever terminology you prefer to use, generalizations about all Western elites need to be accompanied by the more granular analysis at the level of each country. Referring only to the U.S., I think it's helpful to go by, go beyond the basic distinction between over and under and working class and identify distinct groups within it. So I like that part. The material elite proper consists of the functionaries of corporations, large investment banks, large firms, law firms, government agencies, both civilian military, nonprofits, and universities. Uh, they may have professional degrees, but they are essentially organization, men and women, in a centralized bureaucracy. They are the chief beneficiaries of the neoliberal system, and they're set up in the last half of the century to replace the New Deal order. But the American elite includes three other groups. One consists of hereditary rentiers, heirs and heiresses born to rich families, Old money types should be distinguished from tycoons like Gates and Bezos, who tend to be products of upper middle class or moderately rich families who happen to become incredibly rich themselves. So only the most primitive Marxist, which, trust me, don't encounter them very often, believe that a tiny group, because they're modern Marxists, and that's kind of who I'm trying to like get a handle on. Like, um, What theories do we have now? Uh, to the manor born, so anyway, he's, he's referring to the, the local gentry class, okay? 
So there's a German distinction that's been long made between a property bourgeois and a educated bourgeois. The equivalence of these two groups exists in the U.S. today. They are distinct from the big organization managers and important in American politics out of all proportion to their numbers. Lumping them together as the PMC confuses matters. Let us call them the professional bourgeois and the small business bourgeois instead. So the professional bourgeois made up of lawyers, doctors, professors, teachers, journalists, nonprofit workers, and many of the clergy, what's left of them, I guess, is concentrated in the teaching, helping, and research sectors. Their jobs often pay modestly, but provide both status and a degree of personal autonomy that the frequently better paid managerial functions don't have. You know, you're, you're, you're in a position, you're there for life. So the small business bourgeois consists of owner-operators, of franchises, businesses, along with genuine contractors uh, that need to be opposed to gig workers who are either self-employed or employ others. In the U.S., the overclass can be viewed as a compound of the classic managerial elite plus the other two uh, bougie classes. A four-year college diploma is a prerequisite for entry into all of these groups, except for the small business bourgeois, which include a few individuals that uh, became prosperous without uh, a degree. The working class in the U.S. is divided as well. First, there is the heartland work. Okay, so let's stop there, take a breath, because now he's got to go to something he does not spend a lot of time talking about, which I would like to talk about myself, or at least consider how to define the working class. So the working class is divided as well. First, there's, he calls the heartland working class. Those who work in industries located in the low density, exurban, exurban heartland. These industries include, uh, so basically um, any industries outside of metro areas. So they include manufacturing, agriculture, energy, retail distribution, and warehousing. Not to be confused with a, a stereotype of a white, uh, because a lot of those workers are, in fact, people of color, African-American, uh, black, Hispanic, or African-American immigrants, who are at least high school educated, and they live and work in suburbs. Those areas also contain many foreign-born workers through first-generation immigrants make up a greater share of the population in hub cities. Oh, yeah, because there's other... Side of the working class is what he calls the hub city working class. Class of workers that are found in metro areas like New York, San Fran, Atlanta, Houston. Many of these members work directly for the urban overclass as maids, nannies, domestic staff, and indirectly or indirectly provide luxury services, catering, what have you. Various service workers, but he's... He's pretty specific here that they, they're they in the services under the yeah, the overclass, right? He calls the whole upper horseshoe the overclass. So, so they could be, um, you know, tech CEOs, but they could also be that construction um, company owner. So in that case, like it, um, well, it goes on. So to the distinct hub and heartland working classes can be added a third non-elite group, often described as the, and here's a Marxist term for you, the lumpen proletariat, or perhaps more clearly, the underclass. Now, in the 90s, the speech police, and he calls them the speech police, of uh, politically left, a correct left, <laughs> so he's, he's, he's that, kind of, that kind of guy. Um, I'm politically incorrect. 
uh, they, they banned the use of underclass uh, from academic and journalistic usage. This, But you may have noticed I use it uh, informally speaking. So this refers to members of often broken families caught in multi-generational poverty, particularly those trapped in the grim carceral subculture of public housing, welfare, uh, public welfare, uh, we refer to food stamps, petty crime, and the prison industrial complex, which is why it's, it's all basically cultural, you know, meaning it's like a prison, the poverty trap. Uh, like the hub and the heartland working classes, the multi-generational underclass is racially and ethnically diverse and found in both urban and rural parts in the U.S. You know, the uh, quote-unquote trailer trash, where they're addicted to methamphetamines. Then you have the Black Hood, where there's crack and, and so on. Uh, since this is all very abstract, an image might help. Visualize two horseshoes. Here's a double horseshoes. A lower horseshoe whose two prongs point up and an upper one that points down. The lower horseshoe is the underclass. With uh, at the bottom midpoint, with the underclass at the bottom, and hub city working and heartland working class at the points of its two opposing prongs. The upper horseshoe has the managerial elite proper at its midpoint. He's not talking about the billionaires. He's talking about like the managers for the like the for the billionaires because like the billionaires have all the like they they're they're collecting all the wealth, but they're only able to do that because you have all the financial firms and the managers of of all those sub industries you could call them. The person doing the law firm for Amazon makes bank, and they are part of the. You know, their class interest is Amazon's class interest. So it's not like the means of production aren't really as important as the the managing of it. But the local gentry are... Right, they're, they're not managing the orchards mentioned before, but they employ people who do. And that's kind of where I think Lind is getting a little mixed up here about who... Who's the da- dog and what's the tail? And who's wagging who? You know, the, the small business owner f- believes they're being wagged by big government and Wall Street. And the cultural elites talk and, and, uh, and they're like, they don't match up to the political power of, of the Koch brothers and Bezos. Because money is speech. Money is what matters. So it's, it kind of is who's... There's who's holding the money. So yeah, you you can see how I'm trying to puzzle out here. But the clarification will follow in the preceding 20 minutes. So I basically got I've some I've gotten through his explanation of the two horseshoes here. It's probably more. I don't know if I read all of it, but anyways, the schematic. Um, he suggests um that it does map over left and right in the center. Here's where it gets a little spicy, where, so you have the two different kind of prongs of the overclass, the um, the college educated and what he refers to as the non-college educated, or at least the property owning, small business bourgeois. So anyway, but here here's where it's like, you can map American politics, you can explain it with this double horseshoe here. The goal of so-called progressivism in the 2020s America is to expand employment opportunities for college-educated center-left professionals. Hey, like me. 
Uh, while adding new wings, but I say that sarcastically, by the way, by adding new wings to the welfare state that are tailored to their personal needs. So it's kind of it's being really cynical here that like, look, I want health care for all because like I want everyone to have health care, including the underclass, because like if we're really going to help them be get out of the poverty trap, they kind of need to have dependable health care. So the slogan. But here he, he focuses on culture war stuff to the more more or less. But at least as a kind of a as a moderate reactionary, I would kind of classify him. But anyway, the slogan "Defund the Police" is interpreted by the bourgeois professional left to mean t- transferring tax revenues from police officers who are mostly unionized but not college educated to social service and nonprofit professionals who are mostly college educated but not unionized. The enactment of proposals for free college education, debt forgiveness, would disproportionately benefit the professional bourgeois, not the working class majority whose education ends with high school. Though that makes kind of no sense to me because if you kind of ask the working class majority, they would like to go to college, but they can't afford it. Or at the very least, they'd like the option to. And so you kind of get hung up on like, yeah, who's benefiting and whose interest is it in, which is a good thing to do, but it's also like kind of ignoring what, I guess it's ignoring ideology, but it's ignoring what your kind of, you know, egalitarian values. Does this guy have egalitarian values? It's kind of weird. But likewise, public funding for universal daycare allows both parties and a two-earner professional couple to maximize their individual incomes and individual career achievements. But no, 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 no. The universal daycare is also a massive benefit for the the service workers in the cities who are single mothers. It's assuming two-parent households. This guy's weird at times. So it is no coincidence that many professionals in the sectors most dependent on their funding on donations from the capricious rich, like from entropy, college, you know, so it goes on and on. I can't cover it all because also because I kind of haven't read it all. Oh, yeah, but it points out, like, that both of the, you know, overclass, like, they unite when it comes to antitrust stuff. So maybe maybe you could pay attention to, like, the power of Facebook and how, like, when people talk about regulating Facebook or breaking the power of, of Zuckerberg, you know, yeah, you've got this unity between the professional and the small business bourgeois. And most, in, like, all American political discussions, working people of both a lower prongs do not are not factored in at all. Like to him, they're not even mentioned at all. They don't exist. It's weird. He talk like he talks about their existence, but then he has has like they don't seem to have any interests. They don't organize themselves. They have no institutions, but they do. And they're just not of the same scale and power. But they are there. They they're, they're movements. They're the they're the they're the resist well, the real resistance, the revolts, the riots. You know, they riot because they do not have a political party. And that when they do have finally a demand, defund the police, it's it's funneled into the professional classes, you know, I don't know, wheelhouse. Everything that they demand has to be interpreted through the professional elite or whatever. It's, it's a weird guy. His other article that he wrote for this thing is called The Myth of the 99%. I just wanted to cover very briefly, but I wanted to tie into like on my own thinking, mostly from uh, Michael Albert, a different Michael. 
But his argument about um, his argument for like that the real class war is this managerial elite working off the PMC, being like they're the really, really the ones in charge, not the people who own the means of production. Uh, his arguments kind of uh, summarize them that um, like who is the owner of the means of production? You know the the things are produced in offshore factories through various like all of these different uh, corporate management arms and. Da, da, da. And so on and so on. But anyway, his argument, let's see. The ruling class is not limited to the elites who actually rule. It comprises the entire broad spectrum of which ruling elites are drawn. So the tomb ruling class is appropriate when members of a numerical minority of the population with similar family backgrounds tend to monopolize positions of power. So he's using a very spe a specific definition. And so, like, he's saying that those with college educations fit this this description even though so do the small business bourgeois but he's not talking about them like there's he sees like the over there, he sees like the above them is this managerial elite but here's his theses um the second one i think i have or the third one i have a definite problem with so i'll, I'll end my discussion of him there power in modern societies come in multiple forms political power economic cultural power true Thesis 2. The primary basis of power in modern society is not personal property ownership, but influential positions of powerful organizations, whether they be public, private, or nonprofit. So there, I, I'm, alarm bells are going off because it's like, how do you get these influential positions? With money. How do you get money? Especially intergenerational money. Ownership. Don't get it backwards. This guy gets it backwards. So he's talking about social classes, not economic classes. And there you can pay attention to social classes, also pay attention to economic classes. Who are the economic classes in local politics? You know, social classes would be who's getting elected, right? And if it's all like social justice activists, you'll have the you'll have the point of view that, you know, the the, the the Marxists are taking, you know, the, the, the identity politic liberals are taking over and they're in charge and I'm oppressed by them. Meanwhile, who's at the country club? So let's see, my, uh, just to wrap up my notes here about the double horseshoe theory. Um, ask yourself the question, is what I just explained useful in explaining American politics? It could be mapped on, but it doesn't explain... The things like the, the you know, although I was, you know, bumbling around. Zero Books has a sort of response to him about the social class I've mentioned. Um, I think he ignores where value and the stuff comes from, who owns the factories, right? Um, so he's talking about social class, not economics. Let's see. But what he describes is also the same thing that right wingers describe, like this is a book called American Marxism. Um, and it's basically describing how, like, the liberal identity politics has gone too far, and they're they're in charge, and and, uh, and they're they're controlling what Biden does, uh, or something like that. But I mean, these formations of American politics, like, if you if 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 it begins with ends with the president, and that's how you understand America, like power, like who's president? That's what matters. It's just who's president, you know, and if. There's generals that need firing. You need the right president to do that. Or if you need a uh, better trade policy, you need a president to do that. Uh, foreign policy, tax policy, 
you know, whatever, reforms. It's like, who's president? Who's president? It, it's so asinine to me. It, but I have an answer to Lynn's kind of points here. Uh, Michael Albert, who kind of starts, kind of, he also kind of has a PMC kind of basis for things. But he has a wider uh, analysis of looking at greater things. And kind of he sees the divide between classes as being that of empowering work. Now, when you're an owner, you definitely have empowering work. But as far as like a layer of like, how is it you can have these managers who are so influential in American society, but they don't technically own anything? You know, maybe, maybe they have the stocks, but they're not uh, as as um, as Lynn points out, Lind. That that point oh one percent is who owns all the stock. So if we're talking about stock ownership as being like who owns the means of production, who are the real owners of America, it's the you know the these hundred people who defy categorization except that they own the majority of stocks. But they don't seem to have any of the influence in any of the other. So looking at a hierarchies of empowering work is another kind of layer that can maybe you can make sense of things like who has the empowering work in local government in in local business you know is it, is it the sub manager is it the manager of a warehouse is it the owner of the warehouse is it the lawyer for the for that person he's pretty empowered those who are autonomous those are those professional bourgeois they're autonomous they can kind of choose to work who they want to work for though again not really they're going to work for those who own things they're the only people who pay their – they get salaries. They have to be paid by somebody, okay? That's where I'm like, Lynn doesn't make – seem more crackpot when he says, oh, no, it's not who actually owns the things and, and gathers the wealth. It's the people who are paid by them. It, it's weird. But he, he's also talking about, like, this this upper – the national managers. Where do their salaries come from? What, what taxes are brought in? And – most of these billionaires are not paying taxes. So I guess that's why he thinks that they're independent from billionaires. It's not like their salary depends on them. But, I mean, who pays the majority of taxes? Middle class, poor, whatever. Well, I guess the small business bourgeois. And they employ most people. It's weird. So, okay, last 10 minutes... And I finally get to the essay that, like, the first essay I actually read out of all of this, all of these things. And it's actually written by a guy I actually uh, read already, uh, Nicholas uh, Villarela. And at first, like, when I first read him, I didn't think he was a lefty. But it was about how, like, um, if this episode sounds familiar, it's similar to this essay that I wrote, I read of him, about. Uh, describing, well, he talks about himself actually. So it's called, so it's also reacting to the uh, Why uh, Men's essay. So it's called To Hell with the American Gentry. So this sounds a lot more like me, right? Oh, this is my position. Now we're finally at, like, where, where am I at with this? <laughs> Earlier this week, Patrick Wyman, podcaster and historian, put up an article describing the American gentry in their historical context the political and economic power and their support for Trump. This gentry, in the American context, is defined by its ownership of both land and hard-fixed assets. Don't need to retread that again. And he also mentions 
And this is when I, when I started. Like, there was also a quick retort from the unapologetic reactionaries, however, written by Dan and Leary of the American Conservative. I read that, and that's why I was reading that, because I started with this one. So it, it has the link to the original article I read, and then the American Conservative one. <laughs> and it's the conservative one that linked to Lind, where it's like, huh. So why shouldn't we take the side of the gentry, with aristocracy being the logical conclusion of this power, when compared to the threat of distant federal and corporate bureaucracy, he asks. This is a question scarcely answered by Wyman's historical and anthropological account. That would be another essay, wouldn't it? So which asserts, on the one hand, the transhistorical reality of this gentry as local administrators and centers of power, and the reactionary nature that this class has. But this is exactly the question I want to answer here. After all, this is pretty much the subject of my 2020 essay in Palladium magazine on the threat of this gentry to economic development and innovation. In particular, there is one incredibly absurd claim in the American conservative essay that stands out. That right pop, so maybe I didn't get to this, um, but back, wrap, back up to the God bless the gentry. <laughs> But right populism is not about egalitarianism. It's about protecting the interests of the lower classes against the predation of the uppermost elites. I guess I didn't get to this part. For that, the underclasses need overclass allies, and the subject most likely to side with them by far is the one ordered around physical, local property, and less influenced by the progressive institutions that form the professional and managerial factions. You know, because the conservatives is working off of Lynn's ideas. And there you go. Okay. So this argument that the lower class needs overclass allies should be familiar on the left as it's essentially the same as the one proposed by many national liberation movements. That the primary contradiction is the big imperial hegemon. And as a result, an alliance with the national bourgeois is necessary to overcome that oppressive force. You need some small rich people to beat the big rich people. However, this claim by Leary is simply not justifiable on the basis of a class analysis. The reason is very simple. There is simply less share of the pie available for workers when they are being exploited by such gentry. Small businesses are generally less profitable, with lower revenues and cash reserves compared to their behemoth cousins. But even when we are discussing profits, because there is a limit to what individuals can consume in a given amount of time, a smaller amount of capitalists mean less surplus. Okay, I'm running out of time, which really, really bites, because I really kind of wanted to read all of this. So I think I'm going to end early, but for now I'll just summarize something from Lynn's uh, kind of 99% debunk that uh, he covers a general idea that lefties, like myself, or, or lefties overall... Oh, yeah, he also kind of uses stats to point out, like, teachers aren't, like, working class because they make 70 grand sometimes. But, again, like... He's talking about, like, income... Like, if your income is less than 100 grand... You might as well be poor. Because once taxes, health care costs, and all the other things that have been privatized over the years get taken out, 
I mean, yeah, you can live. You're not in the poverty trap, but you're not. You're not in a power class, okay? Anyway, he does point out that. Oh yeah, because like if you look at the stocks, and that only ten percent or point oh one percent, you know, have all the wealth. That this is actually like good. That like you have. Uh, it really is ninety nine percent versus one percent, and you just need to nationalize the one percent. Or something like that. But he points out there's a lot more to it than that. And true. 99% is just a slogan. It wasn't actual economic policy or, you know, a platform. That's where all of the messiness of the Occupy movement came in. Determining what the platform was. Okay. I mean, it's time to wrap up the show. I'm going to read to help the American Gentry next time. I'll try to link it with relevant articles involving organizing, I suppose. But anyway, time to wrap up the show. Uh, it's been a doozy. I always overexert myself with what I think I can read in two hours. It would really only be three of these articles, if, uh, or maybe just two, if I had a partner. Please, if anyone's interested in reading this stuff with me, it really does flow better. My profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, send ideas for the show, Contact me. Don't be afraid. I'm a nice guy. Uh, very, I'm very uh, supportive, and uh, I give great advice, I'm told. Uh, this program is made in part of an independent community radio station, so support us materially. Uh, you can support me materially, privately, uh, personally speaking, with uh, pa- my Patreon page, which I'm also on LibrePay, which is the same thing. And I know that there's this other Patreon alternative that's actually just a co-op. LibrePay is like a non-profit version. There's this co-op version of Patreon. I'll look into it. Repeating again that this episode is broadcast on podcasting apps. This is mainly a podcast. I do stream sometimes. Uh, well, basically, I I go on other people's streams for now. I share them via Facebook, pretty much on Facebook. So you got to go there. Sorry, not sorry, but sort of sorry. I also kind of share these things on Twitter. I should probably do so on Instagram. They're also on Macedon, but that's kind of hard to find. So, yeah, not YouTube yet. Um, I'm kind of slow with that. Kind of a pain. Um, and it doesn't help that I'm actually, maybe Lynn's right about something, that uh, after long last, after a six-year drought, I am working. I'm going to have a civil service job again. Could be temporary, could be longer. Temporary in, uh, as far as a year, temporary in maybe ten years. Anyway, um, I am a product of some generational wealth, but it's definitely been working class oriented, right? Not not really influential and powerful. Not like Linda like makes me f- like would think, because if if the professional managerial jobs were really like putting me in this over class, where's been where's my professional career been? <laughs> That's not the kind like getting a, a college degree, I guess has got kept me out of the poverty trap, but it doesn't make me feel like I'm in any kind of middle class. Okay. Okay. So with that, I will play myself out. Be good, everybody. And please enjoy your week. <laughs>